You can have a seat. Good morning. It's great to see you all here this morning. A special welcome, especially glad to see all the visitors and new people who are here for the first time. Exciting to see you. And like Dan said, I'm filling in for our pastor, Pastor Tom, this week. My name is Paul Joyle. My wife Liz and I are part of the leadership here at The Journey, and we also work full-time for a campus ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship across New England. So while I have a second, I just want to put a quick plug in your ear to be praying for the college students who are returning to campus around this time of year. Uh, Every year around this time, millions of students return to campuses around the country, but especially right here in Worcester, there are tens of thousands of students who are arriving on campuses for the first time or returning, and they're just such an important part of our city, such an important part of our society and our world, really, and, and the transition into college is an exciting, dynamic, and often tumultuous transition, and the college years are super formative in terms of how people are going to live their lives and, and shape the world as they go out from here. So as a church that's committed to Worcester and its well-being, we really need to be a church that cares for the students of Worcester and, and is praying for them. So especially in these couple of weeks, uh, keep the students of Worcester in mind as you pray. So that has nothing to do with the sermon, but just wanted to mention that. In terms of our sermon, uh, for those of you who are just joining us, we've been in a series that is going on for 30-some-odd weeks called B.C., uh, the story of God and us before the coming of Jesus. We're taking a a broad, sweeping overview look of the Old Testament uh, that's going to lead us right up until the start of the Advent season, right before Christmas. Uh, And it's been a, a really rich and incredible series. And uh, I asked Pastor Tom, well, the week I fill in for you, where are we going to be in that story? And he said, uh, the book of Judges. I thought, oh, well, <laughs> sure, no problem, I'll, I'll do it. But um, it's not exactly the most uplifting part of the Bible. There are many parts of Scripture that are tremendously encouraging and uplifting. I don't know so much about this one. So last week, we left off on a real high note. It was an exciting, dynamic, inspiring passage. We looked at the Israelites entering into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. We looked at a a heroic generation who believed the big promises of God and stepped right into them. And we left off uh, with a kind of triumphant entry into the promised land. It was a great victory, a heroic generation, and a real high point in the story of the Israelites. And now we fast forward a little bit to the book of Judges, and I thought, well, how do we transition from last week to this week? The best way I could think to compare it was in thinking about Star Wars, honestly, and and the the original ones, the good ones from when I was growing up. So this may be a little bit before your time or after your time, I don't know, but uh, in the original Star Wars movie, uh, the Rebellion, they're the good guys, are fighting the evil galactic empire, and we end the original Star Wars on a real high note. They've destroyed the Death Star, and and it's a real victory for good over evil, Um, and there's a big celebration at the end. Everyone's happy. We leave the theater. We feel great, super, triumphant. The sequel is called The Empire Strikes Back, and and we fast forward a little bit into the sequel, and the very opening words of The Empire Strikes Back are, it is a dark time for the rebellion. Like, what happened? Somehow we just fast forwarded to this triumphant moment to a dark time, and that's kind of what we're doing today. So we had, we had the awesome crossing of the Jordan River into the Promised Land last week, and now we're entering into the book of Judges, which frankly is a dark time in the history of Israel. So unlike some of you, I didn't really grow up with much exposure to the Bible. That came later in life for me. So I never got any sanitized, like, children's version of the stories. I never got a child's uh, version of the book of Judges. I read it for the first time when I was 20 years old, 
And I can remember it clearly. I remember where I would sit to read my Bible in my dorm room and just going through this book, and I would turn to my roommate and be like, I can't believe this stuff is in here. This stuff's really in the Bible? I mean, it's, it's gory, to be quite frank. If you just take it at face value and don't try to sanitize it, it it's gory stuff. We see some of the worst behavior in all the Bible, I and mean, there's, there's incredible violence. There are there's gruesome stories. Even the heroic stories are kind of gruesome. Um, there's people treating other people like property, whole people groups, objectification of women. There is uh, oppression, violence, all sorts of things. And, um, I mean, there's some things I don't even want to go into detail because the kids are with us this morning, uh, quite honestly. So if, if Judges was a movie, for sure, it's rated R. For multiple repeated images of gruesome violence um, and sexual content, what, what have you, it, it's an R-rated movie. There are some, some really great epic heroic tales in it, and that may be what you hear in Sunday school, but that's not the overall point of Judges. The, the book taken as a whole, which is what we're doing this morning, is a really pretty dark tale. And it's not a high point in Israel's history. It's a pretty low point. Now, if I were them and I were editing the Bible, I probably wouldn't even put Judges in there. But it's not my place to edit the Bible. It's my place to, to read it, to learn from it, to submit to it. And, and in the case of today, to, to teach it as best I can. So that is what I'm going to try to do. So we'll do an overview of what is in this book and talk a little bit about implications for us in our lives now and where it fits kind of in the big story that we've been looking at together as a church. So just a, a couple quick teaching points. So the, the Judges covers a time period in Israel's history. It refers to an era. It's an era of the Judges, uh, right about from 1390 to 1050 B.C. So it's a period of about three and a half centuries where Israel was ruled by these people called judges. So it's the period between when they were ruled by Joshua, where we left off last week, and when Israel gets its first king, where we'll, we'll pick up later uh, in future weeks. Uh, but in between, there's about three and a half centuries where Israel's leadership were these people called judges. And I want to just make sure we get the right picture in our mind when we think of a judge. So when I say judge, I don't know what your mental image is, maybe like Judge Judy or Judge Wapner, depending on your generation. But Probably somebody in a long black robe in a courtroom uh, with a gavel, something like that. That's not really what we're talking about here. These judges are uh, kind of a category of leader that we don't really have an equivalent to in our society. They did have judicial power. They made decisions. They also had executive power and legislative power for whatever it was worth. And a little bit of braveheart thrown in for good measure. So these judges were also strong military leaders and warriors who would kind of lead the people out against their enemies. So that's kind of the picture of, of a judge. It's really not a, a Judge Judy kind of thing, but it's a, a kind of all-encompassing leader, military, judicial, executive, what have you. So these are the judges, and they ruled Israel for 350 years or so. And uh, I just want to open up to a, a passage in Judges chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with you or an electronic version of it, you can open up with me to Judges chapter 2. And really, Judges 2 kind of is a great overview of the entire book. So we can't look through the entire 21 chapters for the sake of time this morning, but chapter 2 summarizes it pretty well. If Judges was a, a symphony, chapter 2 would be sort of like a, an overture that contains all the major themes, all the major pieces. So if you're open to chapter 2, uh, we'll skip down to verse 6 and start reading there. It says, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites... They went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. 
The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at, at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Now we fast forward. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who, didn't, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So this passage here basically summarizes the entire book of Judges. The remaining series of stories that come kind of flesh this out and play it out uh, through stories and, and tales, but this is pretty much what happens. All the major themes of Judges are, are summarized right here, and we'll just quickly look through what those themes are that we see in this passage and that get played out all throughout Judges. So the first one is we see that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, served the gods of the surrounding nations. They worshipped other gods even after all that God had done for them. They turned away from him to serve and worship other gods. And there's really strong language in this passage to describe what they're doing. They did evil. They prostituted themselves. Forsook the Lord. Forsake is a strong word. It means to abandon, to completely turn your back on. They forsook the Lord. This is strong language to describe how serious it is that what they're doing. It's not only strong language, but it's also very relational language if you look at it. They forsook the Lord. Ultimately, their sin is a relational sin. It's a relational sin against God. They do commit, throughout Judges, a lot of sins, like a lot of actions contrary to what they're supposed to be doing. But at the heart of it, the real evil that Judges is getting at is their relational turning from God, this God who did so much for them, who rescued them out of slavery, who delivered them into the promised land and has met their every need. They forsake him. They turn from him. They turn their back on him. Basically, prostitute themselves to other gods. They cheat on him. They're, it's like they're married and, and, they, and they just cheat on this God who's been so good to them. It's a relational sin. And kind of as a side note, 
All sin at its heart is relational in this way. When the Bible talks about sin, it's not just kind of a set of laws. It's not just a set of commandments. It's not, breaking, it's not just breaking the rules or violating commandments. It's not a violation of some abstract moral code. At its heart, sin is relational against God. It's turning our backs against the God who's been so good to us, the God who created us and gave us life and has a purpose for our lives. It's turning our back on him and on his purposes. And that's serious. Now, when I think of sin as just kind of abstract moral code, I can find all kinds of reasons to justify the things that I say and do and think. Like, oh, I don't know, is that really that bad? Uh, you know, it's not as bad as this. It, it's very easy to just scrutinize and evaluate and, and justify things. But when it's relationship, when I think about how good God is, how much he's done for me, how much I love him, and to think of me turning on him, forsaking him, that gives me pause, and that's hard to justify. So we see the Israelites, it's, it's serious stuff, and it's relational, ultimately, against God. That's the sin that, that Judges is getting at. Then, when they do that, number two, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. So there's really serious consequences for what the Israelites do, for their forsaking God. They, they face the music. They face pretty serious consequences. And it's not just some arbitrary consequence that God makes up because he's annoyed. But he has told them this way ahead of time, before they even entered the promised land. He said, look, I'm going to deliver you into this good land. And all you have to do is serve and worship me only. Things will go well. No one will be able to stand against you. You'll be untouchable. But if you don't, and if you turn from me and serve and worship the gods around you, you the surrounding nations will get the best of you. They will defeat you. So he, he's just making good on his word here. This isn't anything that they haven't already known or been responsible for. And, and here they do what they were told not to do, and, and they face consequences. So that's the second thing we see in Judges. When they face the consequences, the third thing, it says the Israelites were in great distress. And their distress is real. They really get conquered by people. They really get oppressed. Some of the surrounding nations are very brutal to them. They're violent. They steal their crops so that they starve and have famines. They're, it's serious. They're in great distress over and over throughout the book of Judges. And then in their distress, they cry out to God, which leads to number four. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. So these judges, these, these mighty leaders that we talked about, the, they make up some of the heroic stories in Judges. You may have heard of some of them, Deborah, Gideon, uh, Samson. There's kind of some mighty warriors, mighty heroes. And we could analyze some of their stories individually to learn some lessons about great leadership. But uh, on the whole, Judges is not a book about godly leadership necessarily. Even these judges falter and fail at various points. But the point is, God responds to the distress of the Israelites by intervening and, and going to work on their behalf. He responds with compassion. He hears their cries and he delivers them. Even though they got themselves into the mess in the first place by turning their back on God, every time they turn back to him, he answers, he responds. He's so gracious towards them. It's easy to look at a book like Judges and other parts of the Old Testament that are kind of gory and violent. They look, they look wrathful. And to think, oh gosh, I don't like that God. I like the God of the New Testament who's all about love and gentleness and kindness and things. Um, but I hope you've been able to see, if you've been with us through this series, it is the same God in the Old and New Testament. Grace is not just a New Testament thing. Judges, I mean, this is grace. This is people repeatedly failing, repeatedly defying God, turning their backs on God. And then the second they turn back to him, 
he responds with kindness. He comes to their rescue. That's grace in judges of all places. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. But ultimately, point number five, they kept returning to ways even more corrupt than the ones before. When left to their own devices, the people just seem to have this propensity towards evil, this, this fundamental, fundamentally broken moral compass, this fundamental sickness in them. They just can't help but turn aside from God. They can't help it. They, they just, despite times of prosperity and peace and things going well for them, they just have this propensity to turn away from God, this, this, this disease that drives them to unfaithfulness and wickedness over and over again, despite the good things that God does for them. So again, this chapter 2 is pretty much a summation of the entire book of Judges. It's a, sort of a cycle that goes over and over. We see this pattern get repeated over and over, uh, and it's, it's illustrated for us in this beautiful chart. So here's, here's the book of Judges for you in a nutshell. It's this cycle repeated over and over again, starting with, well, you can see for yourself, but uh, starting with the Israelites, there's this repeated phrase, again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served other gods. Every time they do, someone conquers them, takes them over, oppresses them in some way. Repeatedly, they cry out to the Lord, and when they do, he raises up a judge who delivers them out of trouble. And repeatedly, they turn back and, and go back to even more wickedness than they had before. So these are kind of the major judges. These are the major chunks of the book. There are other judges who get a sentence or two quickly referred to. You can assume the same basic thing happens in those cases. But these are the big stories. In the case of Abimelech, he's, uh, he's just a really bad judge, a wicked ruler of Israel. And God eventually disrupts his leadership and, and gets him out of power. There's not the same, quite, quite the same cycle. But the book as a whole, you have this cycle over and over again. And it's not really just a cycle that repeats itself. It's more of kind of a downward spiral. It actually gets worse as the book goes on. In the end, God raises up Samson, who, who began to defeat the Philistines, but, it, but they never quite fully overtake the Philistines. Uh, Samson has a, quite a spectacular fall, and, and the Israelites never fully turn back after that. And so actually, after chapter 16, there's five more chapters of Judges, 16 to 21, and then it just gets really bad. So this cycle doesn't repeat itself anymore. You just see the behavior of the Israelites deteriorate worse and worse till the end. Uh, and it, it's really sad. And then it, it kind of ends. The last verse of the book of Judges is a verse that gets repeated throughout. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. And as they do that, when they're left to their own devices, the condition of the human heart is just, it's corrupted, it's propensity towards evil, towards rebellion, towards unfaithfulness, towards just turning away from this God who is so good to them. And that's kind of the book of Judges in a nutshell. That's what's in there. Uh, so what can we take away from this? Well, I think a lot of things. And it's really worth diving into the hard parts of Scripture. They have so much to tell us. I think Judges actually gives us an incredibly uh, accurate picture of humankind, and it teaches us a lot about God. 
By really diving in and not shying away from the tough stuff in Scripture, and particularly here, we can learn a lot about ourselves and a lot about God. And ultimately, that makes for, for kind of a proper worldview. The more we learn about ourselves, the more we learn about God, the more, the more properly we can understand the world and our place in it. We learn a lot about ourselves and a lot about God. We, and the stuff we learn about ourselves, frankly, it's not pretty. This propensity towards rebellion, towards doing wrong, it's in all of us. We see a lot of the worst behavior in the Bible in the book of Judges. And again, I would want to edit it out, but, but really it's in there because this is not a story ultimately. Judges is not, and the Bible as a whole, is not a story about how good people are. It's a story about how good God is. It's a story of how good God is. That's why this is in here. You know, if I tell you my own story of my life, my coming to faith in Jesus, there's a lot of bad stuff in it. There's a lot of things I wish I hadn't done. There's a lot of um, mistakes that I've made and and foolishness that I've committed throughout my life. Uh, But when I tell my story, I include that stuff. Not because I want to condone it. Not because I want to encourage you to do the same. But because it's ultimately a story about how good God is. That's what my story is. So I include that stuff because it's real. And it highlights the goodness of God towards me. That in spite of all uh, the foolish things that I've done, he's shown me incredible kindness over and over again. It's important to bear in mind when we project our image of ourselves to the world and to our friends and people we know. It's not a story about how good we are. When you're talking about your faith with other people, it's not to highlight what an awesome person you've become or how virtuous you are because you're a Christian. It's a story about how good God is. So don't shy away from the ways he's delivered you. Don't shy away from the mistakes. It actually is a more accurate story. And the, the, the point of your story is to show the goodness of God, not the goodness of yourself. And that's the point of the Judges. That's the point of the whole scripture. It's not a story of the goodness of people. It's a story of the goodness of God. And God, comes through, God is the only real ultimate hero in this story. There are some great little hero stories and snippets throughout Judges. But to think those are the point is to miss the point. The hero here is God. God is the one who repeatedly comes to aid, who repeatedly rescues, and who shows goodness and doesn't fall morally in any way. And even in the face of continual rebellion and unfaithfulness, God shows compassion, mercy, and he's the hero of the story. So in terms of worldview, I just talk about this stuff a lot because working with college students, it's important, I feel like, for us to address our worldview. We all have one. We all weigh and, and hear different things about how to view the world. We all have a worldview, and it affects how we live. So it's important to have a biblical worldview. And I think Judges, of all books, really points us towards one. So one worldview that I find very prevalent on campus and throughout our society is that of the secular humanist. This takes all kinds of forms and, and plays itself out in all kinds of different ways. But secular humanism, I would argue, is actually really the unofficial official religion of the Western world. You hear it in all kinds of things. And at the end of the day, uh, it's all about, at the end of the day, secular humanism's claim is we humans can figure things out. We have what it takes to solve our problems and to solve the world's problems. And if we just work harder, or if we just get past old superstitious ways, or if we just have the right form of government, or just the right form of uh, of education, we just get a little more educated, we just make the right advances in science and technology, if we just get to the right state of material well-being, if we just give people freedom to do what they are made to do and and do what they want, we'll, we'll solve our problems. We'll ultimately solve our problems. 
We have what it takes. We have the potential. We just have to unlock it and unlock one another's potential. We can solve our problems and the world's problems. That's a really simplistic view of it, but ultimately that's the claim of secular humanism at the end of the day. And it's everywhere, even among people who, who profess to be of, of different faith backgrounds in our country. Secular humanism, in a lot of ways, rules the day. This is not a good book for a secular humanist. <laughs> a secular humanist would hate the book of Judges and what it claims about the human condition. Uh, but ultimately, I think what Judges presents is more accurate. And if you look inside your own heart, and if you, if you really look at the condition of the world and throughout history, you'll know that it's more accurate. Secular humanism doesn't like to talk very much about sin, really because it doesn't have a way to deal with it. But the Bible is not afraid to talk about sin. It's not afraid to, to point out the stark reality of our human condition because it does have a way to deal with it. Now, another prevalent worldview throughout the world is that of a kind of a cyclical history. So secular humanism is kind of linear. We're, all on, we're on the up and up. We're eventually going to figure some things out. Um, but a lot of worldviews throughout the world are more cyclical. There is no kind of point A to point B. Uh, you find a lot of this in Eastern religions with, with uh, emphasis on cycles of reincarnation or in other, other worldviews where there's a constant battle between good and evil, but good never ultimately wins. And the best you can hope to do is detach yourself from it. Um, and if you look at a lot of art and literature from, from people with, with a circular worldview, you don't find the happy ending. The happy ending is really kind of a, a Western idea. Um, but a lot of cultures don't really, don't really value the happy ending. Uh, a lot of the students I know, they, they watch a lot of Korean dramas, kind of a, uh, an exciting genre. I haven't watched many myself, but from what I understand, uh, they're generally totally depressing. They end horribly. And there's actually, I found some online chat groups for, for post-Korean drama depression. <laughs> I just watched this Korean drama, I'm depressed, what do I do? Well, yeah, the happy ending is not a universal thing. There are a lot of worldviews that, that don't really see us necessarily going anywhere. Things are just kind of cycle, round and round. You know, there's good, there's bad, you make mistakes, and, and who knows? Um, judges could look like that. You could read judges and think, yeah, things are pretty much a cycle, you know? Things go well, they go poorly, they go well again, poorly again. We don't really get anywhere. Uh, you could take that away from Judges. So that's why it's important to look at Judges in the context, again, of the big story, the whole story. It doesn't end there. So, again, the, the final line of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. But eventually, they do get a king. They get earthly kings, which we'll learn about in subsequent weeks, uh, but spoiler alert, they actually end up fa failing too. But ultimately, the Judges points us to the king that we all need and have all been longing and waiting for, who came to us, and that's Jesus. Judges doesn't, you know, this, this cycle doesn't just go on and on forever. God himself actually stepped into human history to put an end to the cycle to put an end to our patterns and give us a way out of just a hopeless cycle of brokenness and failure. Jesus stepped into history to deliver us from that. I'd love to look real quick at, at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It'll be up here. This is the hope that Jesus brings. So after the whole, the whole book of Romans really explains the gospel message and invites people to believe it, and then kind of culminates uh, with this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's the hope and the promise Jesus brings into our lives. Not just conformity, not just being stuck in the pattern of this world with no way out, but transformation, renewal. One of the coolest things that's happened for me in the last year is a correspondence I've had with a cousin of mine uh, named Michael. And, and Michael's life, uh, more than anyone I know, just illustrates kind of a cycle of, of problems, cycle of sin. It started even before he was born. He was born to a mother who used drugs while he was in the womb. He was eventually taken from her, put into state custody, bounced around uh, from home to home, lived in like 10 different homes by the time he was seven. Uh, and then my uncle adopted him. Um, he, had, he got some more stability, a good family, a lot of material things, good schools. But Michael just could not seem to stay out of trouble. Started young with just stuff in school, petty things. He just couldn't seem to help it. And as he got older and older, the things got a little more serious. And the consequences got more serious. And he'd be locked up and put, moved to this school, to that school. He eventually ended up in juvie and, and, and completely fell out from my, my aunt and uncle. He left home and, and we, we didn't hear from him for a really long time. And the last I had heard, he'd been in, in prison for the last decade or so. And believe me when I tell you that, he deserved it. But just in the past few months, I've been in touch with Michael. And he's come to Jesus in prison. His life is completely turned around. And the cycle is broken for him. He's experiencing transformation. He's experiencing renewal. We write letters back and forth. He quotes scripture to me. He encourages me. He's reconciled with my uncle and aunt, which, believe me, was a very hard and painful thing after what they'd been through. But instead of just a cycle of more and more brokenness spinning out of control, things are transforming. There's renewal. I want to read one more scripture that just illustrates the promise that Jesus holds out for us. This is from uh, the book of 2 Corinthians in a larger chapter, but it says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. just want to highlight that phrase, ever-increasing glory. Some older translations have the phrase, from glory to glory. How's that for a cycle? Instead of just spinning around, up and down, repeated failure, from glory to glory. One level to the next. That's what my cousin is experiencing. He still has a few more years till he can be out. But even in prison, he's going from glory to glory. He's encouraging me. He's encouraging people around them. He's seeing reconciliation happen in his family. That's what Jesus brings us. Glory to glory. This is not just a circular story that we live in. Jesus stepped into it to break the patterns of sin that we have in our lives. And it's not just... For us, it's not just a personal thing. It's a global thing. Again, we live in a linear story. History is a linear story. It's not just spinning around till who knows when. It has a beginning, which we looked at earlier in this sermon series, and it's going somewhere. It has an end. That's the biblical worldview. And let's look at what this end consists of. This is from the book of Revelation. 
And the seventh angel, angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. We've got a king, and he's coming again to rule. You know, we can't just leave the second coming of Jesus to crazy people to talk about. This is our worldview. This is our hope. We have a king who has come into history and who will come again. And what will that look like when he comes again? Let's read a little further in Revelation. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who wrote this was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We don't live in a, in a circular story. We live in a linear story that's going somewhere. But where it's going, this is not what I've just read. This is not a human achievement. We're not going to figure this out by just educating ourselves a little better or unlocking our potential or getting the right system of government in place. This is something that Jesus is going to do. This is the Christian hope. So, just to ask you, what, what story are you living in? What story are you living in today? If you're like me, I'm, I'm kind of more the bleak kind of person. A lot of people in my generation, we don't have, you know, necessarily a well-formed circular worldview, but we've seen that secular humanism doesn't work. We've seen that the 20th century was the bloodiest one ever. We see that despite all the advances we've made in science and medicine and technology and, and education, there's still thousands of children dying every day of starvation and preventable diseases. We've seen failure of leadership at every level of our society. We know the promises of secular humanism are empty, but a lot of people my age, they don't know where else to go. They don't know where else to turn. And I can tend to go there myself, but it's important to come back to this story, to come back to this biblical worldview, to remember there's a king who has stepped in to put an end to our cycles of sin and who will come again to put an ultimate end to it all in our lives and in our world. Or maybe you're more optimistic than I am, but are you putting your hope in Jesus? Are you putting your hope in something else that will ultimately fail, that will ultimately disappoint? Because ultimately, free individuals and markets, and systems, and schools, and, and leadership, they all are corrupted by the same sickness that we saw the Israelites corrupted by. They will all ultimately fail. So where are you putting your hope today? And I pray and I hope that we will be a people of real Christian hope, who aren't afraid to honestly assess our human condition, but who can step into it with hope, who live and breathe this hope in Jesus, who, whose lives exude hope, and who talk about hope and proclaim hope. And in hope, we step out and do what that scripture we read together said, and walk in the good works that we've been created to do in Christ Jesus. We're going to close our, uh, our service like we always do with uh, some worship, so if the worship team could come on back up and just spend some time worshiping and praising this king, this God, who has stepped in to rescue us and is coming again. As we do that today, we're also going to take communion. So if the communion servers could also come forward, that would be great. And communion is just a, 
a commemoration and act that Jesus' followers and, and believers have been doing uh, since the church began and will do until he comes again, just to commemorate and to mark that point when he stepped into history to, to rescue us from our sin and our, our disobedience at the cost of his own body and his own blood. But one person, Jesus, who was not affected and not, did not have this propensity towards evil and wickedness, took on the penalty for it all on our behalf. So we take the bread and the wine to remember his body and blood that were poured out on our behalf. So as this next song begins, uh, the servers will be uh, up in the front. You can just come forward. You can take a piece of the bread, which is gluten-free, so everyone can have some, and dip it into the juice and take and eat together. Let me pray for us. God, it's humbling to take a good hard look at ourselves, but we do it because we know we have a God big enough to do something about it. And it's humbling, Lord, to know that the the cost of our deliverance came at such a cost to you and your suffering and death. But we rejoice in that, Lord, that you chose that. You didn't have to, but you gladly chose to enter in in an ultimate way to rescue us out of your love and grace and compassion for us, your desire for us, even as we run away from you. Your goodness to us, your desire for relationship with us would win the day. So we step into that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.